The word of God reads, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark that you give us. And in today's passage, we will be going through some heavy content. Uh, Lord, we pray that the words would weigh our hearts down the way you intended it to. Uh, but Lord, we pray that we would not be consumed by an air of defeat, uh, but a heart of anticipation and joy. Joy over the person and work of Christ. Joy that for those who follow Christ, even if they might seek loss in this life, that there is eternal gain to be received in the next. And Lord, sometimes that is hard to comprehend, that's hard to remember, because our flesh causes us to forget so easily. But Lord, we pray that for today, as we encounter Christ through this passage, uh, that you would nourish our souls, that we would come away having had a soul-transforming encounter with the risen Jesus. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So today's passage uh, is actually smack bang halfway through the Gospel of Mark. There's about 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel. And today's passage falls right in the middle. And it's actually a pivotal part of Mark's Gospel. Because... If you've read or followed our series up until now, you will know that Jesus has been traveling extensively by land and by sea. He's walked an immense distance, covered so much. Like, if you had a spit, like the step, what do they call it? A pedometer? That counts your steps. It would have been like a crazy amount of steps that he would have walked. And his ministry, if you, if you remember, like I shared the locations, I gave analogies how Nazareth was kind of like today's equivalent of equivalent of Mount Druitt. But if you followed, you know, the towns that Jesus visited, 
If we were to equate it into like our geography of New South Wales, it's kind of like he's been sticking around Sydney, Western Sydney, Northern Sydney, Eastern suburbs. He's, he's just kind of stuck around the Sydney area. He's crossed back and forth, you know, over the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed into Gentile regions, then back to the Jewish region, and then, you know, rinse and repeat. But today's passage is a pivotal part in Mark's gospel. Because whilst Jesus has been moving around Galilee, into the Gentile regions, the Jewish regions, in and around Galilee, after today's passage, the trajectory of Jesus' ministry is going to change. Because it's going to start moving towards Jerusalem, where he will eventually be arrested and killed and rise again. That's, that's important as well. He rises again. Um, but I want us to be aware of this, that, that, that this is a pivotal part in today's passage because it will shape the way we unpackage today's verses and it will help us understand why Jesus says what he says in today's passage and says it in the way that he does. Now, last week we saw that Jesus, I graphically described how Jesus healed the blind man at Bethsaida and the opening verse of today's passage shows that after this healing took place, Jesus started traveling to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a region up north. It was a, it was a group of villages, and um, it was just direct north of where the healing took place of the blind man. And verse 27 tells us that as Jesus was making this journey up north, he was with his disciples, which is an unusual. But we also know, because of verse 34, that there were other people present as well. It wasn't just the twelve. But there was a crowd of people that were following Jesus on this journey up north. And whilst they're heading up north to Caesarea Philippi, it says that Jesus turned and asked his disciples a question. What was that question? He says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Like, not you specifically, not you, the 12 disciples, but people in general. What is, what's the general public consensus about who I am? What's the popular opinion? And he probably asked this in light of the fact that everywhere they went, there was a massive group of people following him, but they didn't seem to have a grasp or a, a truthful understanding of who Jesus was. And so the disciples, aware of this, they respond in verse 28 to that question. It says that they told him, John the Baptist, some people say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. So John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets. And spoiler alert, all three of these answers are wrong, because uh, there's none of these. But... These opinions that they have about Jesus for the crowd, they didn't have these opinions about Jesus because they had disrespect for Jesus or because they, you know, they deliberately wanted to have a low view of Jesus. If anything, they thought Jesus was John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets because they had a high view of Jesus. Not high enough, but a high, a high view of Jesus. They thought he was someone that had authority. It was out of respect that they gave him these titles. But as much as these opinions were based on respect, 
Like I mentioned, they were wrong. It was a wrong opinion to have. And when we look at the world that we live in, you know, you look at people outside of the church that aren't followers of Jesus. You ask them, what do you think about Jesus? And unless they're like an aggressive atheist, they'll try to give, you know, a politically correct, you know, a respectful answer. He was a great man. He was a great teacher. He set a great example for people to follow. He was a, you know, I've got a lot of Muslim friends. We live in a heavily dense Muslim-populated suburb. You ask the Muslims, they'll say, he was a great prophet. They'll even go as far as to say, he's the greatest prophet that ever lived. But it's all wrong, isn't it? Because when we look to the Old Testament, and we look to the prophets of the Old Testament, the the greatest prophets, the Elijahs, the Isaiahs, you look at even Moses. What was their purpose? Their purpose was to be a mouthpiece for God, a messenger, a herald, to deliver news that God wants delivered to a particular people group. And if you look through the Old Testament, you'll find that these prophets, they had, uh, there was a duality to what their job entailed. And when I say duality, uh, I mean that in one sense, their job was to communicate a message to a specific people group. So for example, Jonah was sent by God to call the people of Nineveh to repentance. You know, uh, Isaiah, uh, Elijah, they were called to deliver messages to God's people, give them a message of hope, sometimes call them to repentance. But there was, you know, their job was to deliver a message from God to a designated people group. But the dual role on the other side was that they were prophesying about something that was coming in the future. Because if you read throughout the, New, uh, the Old Testament, you'll find passages that, you know, whilst it's addressing Israel, it seems to eerily talk about something that is only fulfilled in Christ. It talks about an eternal kingdom that's going to come. If you look at Genesis 12, for instance, God promises Abraham. He says, you know what, there's going to come a day when through you, all the nations on earth, all families on earth are going to be blessed through you. But then if you look through Israel's history, there never really was a point where that happened, was there? Like even if you look at Israel's history, the greatest kings, probably you'd argue it's David and Solomon, when Israel was at the pinnacle of their history, of their empire, even through them, not all families were blessed by them through the line of Abraham. It's only until you come to Christ where the gospel is made freely available. The gift of salvation, of restoration with God is made freely available to all people. Can you say that blessings were made available to all people? And if you look throughout the the Old Testament, you'll find Isaiah 53, Psalm 21 and 22. You'll see passages, prophecies that aren't just delivered, like the intention is not just to deliver a message to God's people, but it's designed to point to something bigger that's coming in the future. That was the role of the prophets. And the reason why it's wrong to say Jesus was just one of the prophets was because these prophets were talking about a coming kingdom And a coming king, they were messengers delivering the message that the king is coming. And the reason why it's so wrong is Jesus is not the messenger. 
He's the king that the messengers were talking about. And so that was the problem with the general consensus from the public. It was opinion, an opinion that they held out of respect for Jesus, but it was an opinion that was so far off the mark of who Jesus was, because Jesus wasn't the royal messenger for the king. He was the king himself. And so Jesus then presses on after the apostles having answered this. Jesus presses on and asks them a much more direct question in verse 29. He says, okay, that's what the public thinks about me. They think I'm a messenger. I'm, you know, I'm a prophet of God. But who do you? The 12 that I've handpicked, taught personally, discipled, one-on-one. Who do you say that I am? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you've been with me. Like we've, I've been on ministry for about a year and a half to two years now. You've been with me every step of the way. You've heard every sermon that I've preached. You've seen every demon that I've cut. You've seen how the demons have responded to my authority. You've seen the authority by which I've healed, healed people. In light of every miracle that I've performed, what do you think all this has been revealing about my identity and about who I am. In light of all this, who am I? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. It's a pretty good response. Couldn't get any better. That's A+. You are the Christ. To which Jesus responds, don't tell anyone. Matthew's gospel adds a bit more, like a one-liner. Uh, Matthew's gospel, after Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus responds with a compliment and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, it's another name for Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What a compliment. Great work, Peter. God himself has revealed this to you. Peter, acting as a spokesman, for the 12 disciples, by saying, you are the Christ, he's acknowledging their understanding for the 12. He's saying to Christ, as slow and as dumb as we are, like they've just demonstrated throughout Mark's gospel, the earlier eight chapters, that they're a little bit slow. But as dumb as we are, we understand because of everything we've seen that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the messianic king. And you know what? I've, I've grown up in church pretty much my whole life. I haven't been a Christian my whole life, but I, I've been in church my whole life. And if you've been in church and you've grown up in church, you would have heard those words a lot. The Messiah or the Christ. You know, when I was a kid, I thought that Christ was Jesus' surname. Jesus Christ, like J. Lee. It, it's not, in case that's what you thought. Um, but I heard those terms so often that it started to roll off my tongue a bit too easily. Messiah, Christ. And we use those words synonymously with Savior, Lord. If you know, you're in Sunday school, who is Jesus? He's the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. Like they're just terms that you throw out. But as we unpackage today's passage, I want us to learn that this word Messiah or Christ, so Messiah is the Hebrew 
version of the word. Christ is the Greek version of the word. Uh, It's a loaded term. Because God, in terms of what the Messiah represents, if you look through the Old Testament, you'll find that God makes a ton of promises, beginning from Genesis, beginning from the Adam and Eve account. If you remember, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They ate the forbidden fruit. And God promises that there will be a descendant from Eve whose foot will be bitten by the snake, but Satan's head will be crushed by this individual. So all the way from Genesis, there's been a ton of promises to Israel throughout their history about a kingdom that's coming, a king that's coming, a savior that's coming, a messiah, a redeemer. All these promises throughout the Old Testament And what Peter is doing by saying to Jesus, you are the Christ or the Messiah, is he is acknowledging to Christ or Jesus that because of everything we have seen and heard ever since we started following you, because of everything we've seen, every sermon you've preached, every discipleship session that you've held with us, every miracle you've performed, we understand that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the embodiment and the fulfillment of everything that God promised in the Old Testament. Everything that our people have been waiting for for hundreds of years, we understand that you are the fulfillment of that promise. That's what it means when we say that Jesus is the Messiah. The eternal messianic kingdom that our people have been waiting for hundreds of years. We understand that you are the one that is the king of this kingdom. You are the one that's ushering in this kingdom. And it sounds great, doesn't it? What a revelation to have. But there's a problem. What's that problem? If you remember last week, when we saw the blind man getting healed by Jesus, like Jesus spat in his face. And we saw the healing occur in two stages, didn't we? He eventually got healed by the second stage and he received perfect 2020 vision. But at the first stage, it was still blurry. And kind of like the blind man last week, it feels like they're stuck at that first stage. They understand who Jesus is. They've, Peter's given the correct theological term. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. But their spiritual vision is still a bit blurry. Because whilst they got the title right, it seems that they don't fully understand what this title of Messiah means. And even though they got the title right, like let me let me expand on that a bit. Expand on that a bit. Their understanding of Messiah was a bit skewed because they knew the Old Testament. They knew that a new kingdom was coming, but their understanding of what the Messiah, what the eternal King would look like, was more of that of a warrior king, someone that would come and eliminate Caesar, overthrow the Roman Empire, and liberate Israel. They were expecting an Alexander the Great 
Or have you seen 300? A King Leonidas? Or maybe a Napoleon? That's the kind of Messiah that they thought would show up. And so even though they got the title right, that Jesus is the Messiah, there is a reason why Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Because of their skewed understanding of what the Messiah represented, and he wasn't just the twelve. Most of God's people at the time had this idea that the Messiah would be like a military general. The reason Jesus wanted to keep this hush-hush was because he didn't come to incite a rebellion or a revolution. He didn't come to be a warrior king. He came, as you all know, to be a sacrifice. And because this is a pivotal part, remember I said at the beginning, this is a pivotal part in Jesus' ministry, this passage... Look at what he immediately does after Peter makes this confession in verses 20 or 32 to 33. Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, bingo, don't tell anyone. But verses, sorry, 31 to 32, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then verse 32 begins by saying that he said this plainly. You know, if you've looked through Mark's gospel and any of the other synoptic gospels or John's gospel, you'll find that when Jesus preaches or teaches, he often uses parables. He loves metaphors. Must have been a poetic guy. Um, he loved using analogies and metaphors and similes. And most of the time it went over their heads. Like, if, if you remember, like, whenever Jesus taught a parable, it seemed like the disciples had no idea, the people had no idea, but he'd just communicate the parable and he'd just walk away. Don't get it? Too bad. And he'd walk off. But in today's passage, we find that Jesus didn't do any of this. No parables, no metaphors, no analogies. Verse 32 says he began teaching and he did it plainly. Directly, just laid it out as it was. He told them, I, the Messiah, am going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by the highest religious authorities that we have, the Sanhedrin. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. And he says, not just that these things are going to happen to the Son of Man, but he says, they must happen to the Son of Man. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, look, I know you had this understanding and expectations and these hopes and dreams of what the Messiah would look like, a warrior king, a guy that's pretty good at fighting. But he teaches them to show them there is nothing biblical about this kind of an understanding of the Messiah. The reason Jesus taught them, presumably from the Old Testament, was to show them from Scripture that the Messiah was never going to be unleashed onto the scene as a warrior. But instead, as a humble servant, if you read Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the suffering servant, it is one of the clearest prophecies about what the Messiah will look like doesn't describe it as a warrior king, describes it as someone that's come to die. 
He explains from scripture that the Messiah is not an extravagant military conqueror, but a meek, humble sacrifice for the people. And this would have been a slap in the face for what they were expecting and anticipating. And so verse 32, Peter is horrified. That's not what I wanted. And it says verse 32, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You're wrong, Jesus. Oh, the audacity. Imagine what Jesus, you just said I am God's fulfillment of all of God's promises. You're telling me that I, God, am wrong? Now, when Peter rebukes Jesus, the popular way to interpret that is that he rebukes Jesus out of his love and devotion to Jesus. No, Jesus, you can't die. Um, maybe there's a bit of truth to that. Uh, maybe Peter was like, you're our beloved rabbi. You're our master. I won't let you die. Uh, but I, I don't see it that way. I might be wrong. But I think Peter's motive for rebuking Jesus was a selfish one. And I want you to hear me out on this. If you disagree, you disagree. Not that important. But here's why I think Peter's motivation was selfish. Because remember, the apostles, they understood that Jesus was the Messiah. But they had a skewed, erroneous understanding of what the Messiah would look like. They wanted a warrior king that would overthrow Rome, establish this new superpower of an empire establish Israel in an unrivaled way like never ever before. And if you're going to be following the leader of this new empire, if you're following the guy that you think is going to become the leader of the free world, the greatest empire ever to exist in the history of man, and you're one of his hand-picked servants, his right-hand guy, when this kingdom gets established, who do you think is the first one that gets promoted? Me. Not me, but Peter. That's the mode of thought that I think that Peter had. He was anticipating that when this kingdom gets established, I'm going to get the highest promotion. I'm going to have the best paying job. I'm going to be the most respected guy in the land. Whenever Jesus, you know, when Jesus was starting this out and everyone said he was, a, he was crazy, a false teacher, a false messiah, when the religious authorities attacked him, who stuck by his side every step of the way? Me. And so he probably anticipated honor and prestige in this new earthly kingdom. And so to hear Jesus say, hey guys, I'm going to die. That would have been a slap in the face to Peter. Which is probably why Peter exercised such audacity to rebuke the Messiah. Rebuke, how dare you say that to the Messiah. Now, I don't think the way I interpret Peter's response is too popular. Uh, I read a few commentaries. I didn't really read many other commentators that shared this opinion. Um, most people think he protested out of love. Uh, but I think my interpretation makes sense in light of verse 33. Because if you look at verse 33, it says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
He rebukes Peter and references Satan. Now, just to make it clear, he's not saying to Peter, you're Satan, but he's saying your thought process is satanic. It's evil because it's not God's will. Jesus is explaining to Peter what he's doing. He's saying to Peter by saying, get behind me, Satan, set your things on the Set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. What he's saying is, you know what? What you're doing is you're telling God, forget your agenda. Forget your plans. What about my plans? I had great things planned. I had a whole roadmap of what my career going forward would look like. You're saying to me, Peter, that if I'm to die, it's going to throw a spanner in the works of my plans. Peter understands that Jesus is the Messiah. But Peter doesn't want a dying Messiah or a suffering Messiah. Because it will cramp his lifestyle and cramp the plans that he has for his life. Peter has a correct understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. But he has an incorrect understanding of what kind of a Messiah Jesus came to be. And so Jesus then in verses 34 to 38, we're just going to rush through this section because uh, we're running out of time. He makes sure that everyone understands. He wants no mistake, no parables, no cryptic messages. He just lays it out blankly what the Messiah is meant to look like. He says, and calling to the crowd, or calling the crowd to come to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now these verses... Uh, they're pretty self-explanatory, but I just want to flesh out a couple of things. And it's with regards to self-denial. Because this is often misinterpreted. What does it mean to deny yourself? And what does it mean to take up your cross? You know, some people think denying yourself is depriving yourself of any kind of pleasure. Like I've been on multiple failed diets, um, and, you know, some people think denying yourself is when someone offers you a slice of pizza and you're on your diet and just mentally you're like, no, I won't have that pizza. And then you come away thinking, yes, I denied self. Is that self-denial? Or if you go to Macca's and you have like a, a Big Mac meal and an apple pie, six nuggets, and you're like, no, I'm not going to have that McFlurry because I'm not going to be a pig. Is that self-denial? The answer, I'm sure you know, no, that's not self-denial. That's not, at least that's not the self-denial that Jesus is talking about. When Jesus is talking about self-denial, picking up your cross, the thing about a cross, like my wife always jokes that she's the cross that God gave me to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about like picking up a cross. Denying yourself and taking up your cross, it's not about denial of pleasure. It's not about like, depriving yourself of any kind of joy. It's not about inflicting 
pain on your life and pretending, oh, this, this is great. What Jesus is talking about is that for anyone that's going to be serious about following him, their life has to be a life of surrender. That's what it means to deny self. Because what happens when you come to faith in Christ? You repent. And when we look at that word repentance, just one way we can put it is that you're just simply giving up. You're giving up on relying on yourself. You're saying to God, I give up, I surrender. I'm going to stop depending on myself. I'm going to step down from the throne of my life and I'm going to stop trying to you know, live this life with my life, my plans, with a little bit of Jesus slapped on the side. Self-denial is saying to God, I am giving you the throne of my life. I understand I can't do this by my own strength, by my own volition. My only hope is to place my trust in you and to give you the throne of my life. And it's not about my plan plus Jesus. It is all about you now going forward. And this self-denial, because we are of the flesh, even after we follow Jesus, until the day we enter into eternity, because we're still of the flesh, it's not going to be zero to 100, but it's going to be an ongoing process. Self-denial is an ongoing process that we go through as Christians day by day under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Self-denial is this surrendering and a day-by-day aligning of your plans and your purposes to the will of God, saying to God on a daily basis, may I become less, may you become more. Now, if that's self-denial, what is this cross, uh, does taking up a cross meaning mean that I have to be a masochist and just pretend like I enjoy pain? Like when my wife complains, Jay, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. Oh, thank you, my wife, I love hearing. Like, that, is that what he's talking about? That's not what he's talking about. Picking up your cross isn't about intentionally seeking pain and pretending like it's a good thing. But he's saying that if you surrender your life to Jesus, things will probably become difficult. Let me read verse 38 again. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. In these latter verses, Jesus is addressing the disciples and the crowd And he's telling them, if you surrender your life, if you deny self, I want you to count the cost. He's saying, if you follow me, it's going to cost you. To say that you're going to have to be, well, there's going to be instances where you might feel shame implies that following Christ at some point in your life, may cost you your image, it may cost you your reputation, as you live for him in this fallen world, but count the cost. Weigh up what it will cost you in this life, as opposed to what you will receive in the life to come. And then that's how today's passage ends. And for the observations, uh, two questions. The first 
is the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say that he is? You know, the unbelieving world, like I mentioned earlier, likes to try to reconcile what we believe with what they want to believe. They will acknowledge that Jesus was a good man. They'll say he was a good person, a charitable guy, a humanitarian. Muslims will say that, you know, he, he's the greatest prophet. You know, Hindus will say that he's one of many gods. They'll try to meet us halfway. But what we learn in today's passage is that there is a danger in having a skewed understanding of who Jesus is, what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Because all of those concepts that people have about Jesus, it might come from a place of respect, but none of those opinions call for you to surrender your life to him. None of them do. Jesus being a teacher doesn't mean that you have to surrender your life to him. Jesus being a good guy doesn't mean you surrender your life to him. But if Jesus is the eternal king of the new kingdom, if he is God incarnate, then you have no place left to stand except to give your life to him and surrender everything to him. Major world religions might try to acknowledge Jesus and give him a place of honour, but to them, this idea of surrendering your life to him, denying yourself for him, taking up your cross and following him, to them, this idea is absurd. That's the reality. It was absurd to Peter. That's why Peter rebukes Jesus. How dare you, Jesus? This isn't the Messiah I was expecting. In fact, if you have an incorrect understanding of the Messiah and the King, what it will do is it won't only cause you not to surrender your life to him, but it will give you an incorrect understanding of what it means to follow him. And so that question that Jesus asked Peter, it's probably the most important question that anyone can ask themselves. Who is Jesus? Because understanding who Jesus is will determine and shape not just whether we follow him, but it will shape whether we follow him the way Christ calls us to follow him. Who is Jesus? How are you going to answer that? Because that's an important question. I would argue the most important question that anyone could ask. Who is Jesus? And as a pastor, what is the answer? Where can I find the answer? If you want to find out who is Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, then you read who God is by reading what God says about himself. Don't fall for popular opinions about what the culture says. I think Jesus would be this kind of a guy. If you want to know God, then go back to the source. Read what God says about himself. You can't go wrong. But that important question has to be asked if you're going to follow Christ the way he demands to be followed. Who is Jesus? Final question. Will you be a follower or a bystander? 
You know, I entitled this sermon, The Call to Radical Discipleship, but the reality is that there is no such thing as radical discipleship. It's just meant to be discipleship. The reason we call it radical discipleship is because we've lowered the standard of what discipleship is meant to look like over the course of time. Jesus, when he talks about follow me, he doesn't give levels. Oh, you can follow me this much or this much or this much. Or if you want to be crazy, you can follow me this much. He doesn't give levels. It's not radical discipleship. It's just discipleship. And so I made the second point of this sermon as a question. Are you a follower or a bystander? Because sometimes we try to create levels to this whole following Jesus thing. That, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm just going to be a bystander Christian. I I don't want to be too crazy. I don't want to be like a religious nut. And often we have this Peter mentality in the way we try to relate to Jesus. Christ calls us to follow him, to align our will, our life to him. But we have this Peter mentality where we don't want our lifestyle cramped. We don't want our life to change. We want glory. We want blessing in this lifetime. We don't want, want it to come at a cost. We just want our plans for our life fulfilled with the power of Jesus and then that's it. We want just enough Jesus to make the plans of our life come to fruition so that I have a house, a car, two kids and a good job. The end. But that's not the life that Christ calls us to. Ever. I read, I've read this Bible so many times, I've never seen Christ call us to this kind of a life. And he's never described discipleship in levels. And so Jesus doesn't mince his words when Peter reveals that his idea of what it means to follow Jesus is wrong. Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus rebukes him right back and says to him, get behind me, Satan. For You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it's a rebuke to Peter and it's a rebuke because it's a living word. It's a rebuke to God's people. Even today. Stop living your life as a bystander for Christ. It's not your life plus Jesus. It's Christ and nothing else. Outside of him, there is nothing. Outside of his plan, there is nothing. You might say, well, what about the next 50 years? Yeah, but it ends there. And then there's nothing. No matter what the world might conjure up, Christ is saying that this is the reality. This is why Christ explains the cost so plainly. No metaphors, no parables in this passage. He just says it directly because it's a pivotal part in his ministry and in Mark's gospel. Having a true understanding of who Jesus is. That question, who is Jesus? Having a correct understanding of who he is will shape how you follow him. And it will shape how you receive the promises of the gospel. And so I'll conclude today with that question. Are you a bystander for Christ? Or are you a follower of Christ? Are you going to cling to your pride and your plans for this life? Or are you going to deny self, take up your cross, and prayerfully ask God to sit on the throne of your life, to make his plans your plans, to make his will your will on a daily basis, to say to Christ, I am stubborn, I am a sinner, but if I have a will that I cannot let go of, I want you to bend it, break it, and transform it.
so that my life from this day forth will never be the same. And I know that sounds harsh, but I assure you that our Saviour, our Messiah, is a kind and a gentle master. If you feel up until this point you've just made a mess of things, there is grace on offer and grace in abundance. He will not scold you. He will not turn you away. He will give you a new beginning. But he begins with that question. Who is Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you in the name of your Son. We thank you for this pivotal part in Mark's Gospel. We thank you that you are not a God that sugarcoats your words, but you, you say it as it is because you know what is best for us. Father, I pray that if we have had a skewed understanding of who Christ is, that we would repent and start again. Give us the strength to start again and help us on a day-by-day -day basis to discover Christ and encounter him and be transformed by him each time we open your word. We pray for the Spirit's strength in all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.